Our passage reveals a vision of heaven by the Apostle John, who's the human author of the book of Revelation. And in verse 6, he describes a lamb that he sees at the throne. And he says this lamb looks, and I quote here, as if he had been slain and also having seven horns and seven eyes. Now there's some deep symbolism here, and many scholars believe that John is drawing from a rich tradition from the Old Testament and even from some writings during the period between the Old and New Testaments that would have been familiar to his original readers. And so a scholar named Robert Mounts comments that the seven horns of the Lamb symbolize his irresistible power, and the seven eyes speak of the completeness of vision which leads to perfect knowledge. He's a scholar, and he knows this original literature well, and so I'm just going to take him at his word, but I'll also concede that Revelation isn't the easiest book to understand, and yes, some of its imagery and its warnings of judgment can seem a bit intimidating. I think we can definitely overcome some of those fears by familiarizing ourselves with some basic rules of interpretation, but I'd also say that even a lay Christian, a so-called lay Christian, can read a passage like this and sense that John is experiencing something spectacular here. He almost seems overwhelmed. Now, it's clear that the object of worship here in our passage is Jesus. There's no doubt about that. Jesus is the lamb who was slain and has risen again and rules from the throne. And for our purposes this morning, I want to focus especially on this song of praise to the Lamb that we see in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 we read, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. At the risk of stating the obvious, this is our future, my brothers and sisters. We are reading the book of Revelation here, so this is how our story is going to end. This is our happily ever after, except this is no fairy tale. And so the question for us today is, what can this stunning vision of worship at the end of our story teach us about our need, indeed, our duty, our privilege to pursue racial reconciliation and diversity now. What can we learn from this glorious future hope that we see in our passage this morning that can encourage us to seek racial justice in the present? Our passage offers many lessons for us, but I'm going to focus on just three. This first one's kind of long here, so I'll Give us uh, some time to write it down for those of us who may be taking notes. The first lesson we can learn from our passage this morning is we can celebrate our own racial identity while also fully embracing our Christian brothers and sisters from different races and ethnicities. (laughs) I know it's a mouthful, but I really couldn't find any way to make that shorter. I'm sorry. We can celebrate our own racial identity while also fully embracing our Christian brothers and sisters from different races and ethnicities. 
Let's look again at verse 9. Verse 9, we read, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, we just cannot overlook the fact that John is highlighting here the racial diversity of these worshipers. He clearly says there will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation. If I put it differently, no believer will be excluded from this heavenly chorus of praise on account of his or her race or ethnicity. I think we can also assume that if every tribe and language and people and nation will be represented in this gathering of worship around the throne of the Lamb of God, well then, that also means that all of the different races and ethnicities that we see today will still exist in the new heavens and new earth. A committee of pastors and scholars from my denomination put it this way in a report I recently read. It says, The particularity and individuality of the nations, tribes, peoples, and languages is not done away with. Rather, the diversity and unity of the praise, each in their own language, will redound to the splendor and praise of the God who redeemed his people with the blood of his son, Jesus. I put it a bit more simply, your identity as a Christian will not cancel your identity as an Asian American or a black American or a Native American or a white American or what have you. And so that means we can celebrate our own racial and ethnic identity. We can be proud of the color of our skin and the language we speak and the food that we eat and certain holidays that we celebrate along with other customs and habits that maybe distinguish us us from people of other cultures or ethnic backgrounds. We can celebrate the people and the moments from our history that make us proud to be who we are. Now I know some of us who are a bit older might be thinking back on our younger days and boy, can you imagine hearing this? as you were walking around in your public schools as one of the few minority students, how comforting that would have been. But yes, we can be proud. We can celebrate our own racial and ethnic identity. None of that will be erased when we get to the throne room of heaven. This vision of doxology through diversity highlights an important reality about God that can be summarized in a short but memorable phrase that I heard from our own Dave Cho during one of our recent faith and race classes that he led. The phrase is, God isn't colorblind. He's colorful. Isn't that a great expression? God isn't colorblind. He's colorful. What we have here in our passage is a unity of praise, but not a uniformity. This song of praise to the Lamb is a symphony of diverse melodies and harmonies that enhance the overall beauty of this heavenly doxology. And so your racial and your ethnic identity, that is a gift, my friends. It's not an accident. It's not something to be ashamed of. In fact, we can even say that 
Your racial and ethnic identity is part of God's good plan, his wise plan for this world. We see this from what the Apostle Paul shared when he visited the city of Athens. In his memorable speech on Mars Hill, he said, From one man, God has made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And so your racial and your ethnic identity is a beautiful reality. You can celebrate that. But as much as this is true for each of us, it's also true for every other human being created in the image of God. Yes, this means we can celebrate who we are, but it also means we must fully embrace our Christian brothers and sisters from different races and different ethnicities. Our racial and cultural identity, it's not irrelevant. It's important. But it should never be the basis for judging another person's character or his or her intelligence or ability to achieve success. For us as Christians, a person's race should never be a barrier to our unity in worship and fellowship and our common mission with the wider body of Christ. Now, unfortunately, that has happened far too often. Nobody who has even a superficial knowledge of church history can deny that. And the fact that it's happened as often as it has over the church's history is a painful reminder of so many sad realities. It's a reminder that we still live in a broken world. It's a reminder of our sin. It's a reminder of our failure to understand and obey God's word. It's ultimately a reminder of our shallow understanding of the gospel. In a different paper published by my denomination, it says, Natural affinities of background, culture, and language are often powerful vehicles for the transfer of the gospel in unity and worship. These affinities are not inherently evil and may legitimately create much congregational homogeneity in locales where there is little racial or social diversity. In other words, Yes, we can celebrate our own racial identity, and it's even okay to do church with people who look like us. Going on, though, however, such affinities become barriers to the gospel mission and testimony of the church when the desire to associate only with like persons becomes justification for the active or passive exclusion or segregation of persons from different backgrounds or for the devaluing of their contribution to the body of Christ. Formally, or informally segregating persons from position or membership in any gathered body of Christ on the basis of race, national origin, color, or social status is contrary to the gospel. So we need to be honest with ourselves. Maybe we've found ourselves thinking these kind of thoughts or even acting along these lines. And if that's true, my plea for us is let's remember how our story ends. Let's remember where we're going. One day we will join with all of our brothers and sisters from every tribe and language and people and nation. And together we will praise the worthiness of the Lamb of God. And in that praise, each of us will retain our distinct God-given racial identity even as we join in this chorus of diversity, this doxology of diversity. That's where we're going. 
And I hope that this future hope can be the fuel for our efforts to pursue deeper, life-giving relationships with believers from other ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, and even seek forgiveness or reconciliation if that's something that we feel God leading us to pursue. We can celebrate our own racial identity while we also fully embrace our Christian brothers and sisters from different races and ethnicities. That's our first lesson for this morning. Secondly, second, we must subordinate all of our other identities to our identity in Christ. We must subordinate all of our other identities to our identity in Christ. Now, maybe some of our youth group members are thinking, what does that word subordinate even mean? Well, the easiest way I can define subordinate is to treat or think as less important than something else. That's what that word means, to treat or think as less important than something else. I wasn't trying to sound fancy or smart when I chose that word. It's just shorter than we must think of all of our other identities as less important than our identity in Christ. We must subordinate all of our other identities to our identity in Christ. What I'm saying here is that our racial and ethnic identity is important. It's not irrelevant. Again, it's something to celebrate. The question is, is it the most important thing? And here I believe our answer must be no. It's not the most important thing. I am proud to be an Asian American, and specifically a Korean American. I'm more proud now than I was when I was younger, I have to admit. But it's not my most important identity. It doesn't ultimately define who I am. But something else does. And more relevant for today's topic, if we're Christians, then the one reality that unites us all is more important than any other reality that distinguishes or differentiates us from each other. This is a point that the Apostle Paul makes very clearly in his letter to the Galatians when he writes in chapter 3, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, our most important identity as believers is our identity in Christ when we're united to him through faith and adopted into his family. Now again, all of our other identities are important, but they become subordinate to this new identity that we all share together in Christ. Or as Paul puts it at the end of verse 28, we're one in him. Now, John uses his own imagery in our passage today. In verse 9, he says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, what does he mean there in verse 10 when he says that God has made us as Christians a kingdom and priests? Well, he's borrowing that language from one of the most important events in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus tells the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt 
And then after he leads them through the Red Sea and saves them from Pharaoh's army, he brings them to Mount Sinai. And there, at Mount Sinai, God tells his people through Moses that they will soon receive the Ten Commandments and the law. Listen to what he says. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you to speak to the Israelites. Now let's follow the sequence of thought carefully here. First, God reminds his people of the mercy and the grace that he has already shown to them. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. How I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Then next, he promises to make them his kingdom and priests and holy nation. Verse 6. But God also lays out the conditions for that promise. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, then you'll be for me a kingdom of priests. Now, I talked a little bit about the offices of priest and king for those of us who were with us during our recent Advent teaching series. You may remember me talking about how priests in the Old Testament served as mediators or middlemen between God and his people. And well, as a kingdom of priests, the Israelites together as a nation were to stand between the one true God and the rest of the world. Since the Israelites were God's chosen people, they were given the privilege of showing all the other nations who God truly is by keeping his law. Their obedience would reveal also God's good and compassionate rule, not only over them, but over the entire world. This is how they were to be his kingdom of priests. I hope that's clear to everyone. But even more importantly, this would be their new identity. For over 400 years, the only identity that the Israelites carried was that they were slaves in a foreign land. But now they would no longer be defined by that identity. And again, it's important for us to see that this promise that God makes is conditional on the people's obedience. Again, verse 5, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, then you will be for me. Future tense. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. Now, in John's vision from our passage this morning, it's Christians who inherit this new identity that was promised to the Old Testament Israelites so long before. We now become God's kingdom and priests. But there's also an important difference. In the Old Testament, this is promised as a future thing that will depend on their obedience. But here in Revelation, this new identity is already given. It's not a matter of it may or may not be yours, depending on how well you obey. No, it's already happened. Look carefully at these lyrics from this song by the heavenly host, the Lamb of God. They say in verse 10, You have made them, past tense, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests 
to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. In other words, this new identity is already ours. Jesus has already made us to be a kingdom and priest. And we now have the privilege of representing him to the world and revealing his good and compassionate rule over all things. Now there's another important difference between John's vision here in our passage and what happened with the Israelites back in Exodus chapter 19. And Greg Beale, a New Testament scholar, summarizes it well. He says, whereas Israel was chosen instead of any other nation to become a kingdom and priest, now God's people are chosen from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Nobody's excluded from this kingdom, from this priesthood, because of his or her race or ethnicity. In fact, it's the very diversity of this new kingdom and priesthood that makes it so unique and special and beautiful and different. my friends, this also means that this is the reality that unites us. The fact that we are God's kingdom and priests. That is more significant, even more significant than any other reality that distinguishes or differentiates us from one another. If our pride in being Asian or black or white or Latino or Latina or in a wonderful mix of these identities, if our pride in those identities hinders us in any way from fulfilling our identity as God's kingdom and priests together with our sisters and brothers from other racial and ethnic backgrounds. Well, and that's a problem. We must subordinate all of our other identities to our identity in Christ, to our identity as members of his kingdom and priesthood. That's our second lesson from today's passage. Third and last, I'm trying to speed up here for time. We must take this issue of racial reconciliation seriously. We must take this issue of racial reconciliation seriously. First, because our identity as members of God's kingdom and collective priesthood demands that we take it seriously. I just finished talking about that, so I won't repeat myself here. But our passage provides another reason why we must take this issue of racial reconciliation, racial diversity, and racial justice seriously. You and I, we have this incredible privilege of being members of God's kingdom and priesthood, and that privilege was freely given to us. But it came at immense cost to someone else. We see this again in verse 9 when we read this doxology to the Lamb of God. Chorus says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchase from every tribe and language and people and nation. I'm going to quote here from a pastor named John Piper, who I know is familiar to a lot of us. And, you know, John Piper's a white guy, grew up in the South, had seen racism down there kind of up close and personal, and we could also describe them as considerably reformed, theologically, perhaps a bit more on the conservative side on certain political and social issues, and yet, listen to what he writes here in his book called Brothers Were Not Professionals. He says, the price of God's securing ethnic diversity in the priesthood and the kingdom is the death of his son. The design of the atonement 
is racial diversity in the company of the redeemed. Applying and pursuing this is not merely a social issue, quote-unquote. He writes, it is a blood of Jesus issue. That is what it cost. That is how important it is. Now to go one step further and say it's actually even more. Our passage tells us that Jesus paid the ultimate price to redeem persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he did this to redeem us, to purchase us for God. If I put it differently, racial and ethnic diversity aren't just blood of Jesus or gospel issues. They are, but even more importantly, perhaps, these are glory of God issues. The glory of God is at stake here. This kingdom and priesthood of members from every tribe and language and people and nation, it matters because this is the vision that will honor God. God will be most glorified through this doxology of diversity. God will receive the maximum praise when his praise comes from every tribe and language and people and nation, not just from one people group. If these realities sink in, if we come to see and appreciate the immense cost that Jesus paid in order to secure this diversity, if we come to believe that there's nothing less than God's very own glory that's at stake here, then I just don't see how we can treat racial justice as merely a social issue. My brothers and sisters, it is a gospel issue. It is a glory of God issue. And so my plea for all of us is, let's take it seriously. Now, how exactly can we do that? Well, let me close by suggesting just one way. One way we can take it seriously is to anticipate a cost. Anticipate a cost. Let's be reminded that Jesus paid a heavy price for this hope to see every tribe and language and people and nation gathered in this doxology of praise to the Lamb. We see that in verse 9. And in the book I quoted earlier, John Piper also writes, if the pursuit of ethnic diversity and harmony in the company of the redeemed cost the Father and Son such a price, should we expect that it will cost us nothing? Or that it will be easy? He says, no, the devil who hates the glory of God and despises the aims of the cross will not relent without a fierce battle. To join pursuing racial diversity and racial harmony will be costly for you and for your church. So costly that many will try it for a while and then give up and walk away from the effort to easier things. But some will persevere and be found doing their duty when the master comes. And I just hope that we as individuals and we as RCC will be among this latter group that perseveres. But it will be costly costly in at least three ways. First, it'll cost our time. I believe it was President John Adams who famously said that facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. 
And I learned as a history major how sobering certain facts can be if we're willing to take the time to do our homework. Now, that's not to say that all the facts will be bad. For example, as we reflect on our country's history, there are many moments and heroes that we could celebrate and thank God for, but intellectual honesty also demands us to admit that there will also be events and villains who will grieve us, who will make our hearts ache once we learn about them. But again, we need to be willing to take the time to learn these facts from history. There will be a cost to our time. Another cost I think will be criticism. It's just inevitable. There will be brothers and sisters in Christ who won't believe this is a gospel issue. They'll wonder if this is really the best use of the church's time and resources. And some may even think that addressing this so-called social issue is compromising the gospel. So just be one of the costs we'll have to be willing to pay in our efforts of pursuing racial justice and diversity. And finally, another cost we'll have to consider is the cost of discomfort. Talking about these topics can be uncomfortable. It may require us to look into our own hearts and ask ourselves if we're guilty of harboring any of these kind of sinful attitudes about people of color or people of a certain color. It may even require us to admit our sin and ask for forgiveness. That's all very uncomfortable stuff. But I guess the real question is, is it worth it? <laughs> is the cost to our time, is the cost of whatever criticism we may receive, is the cost of our discomfort, is it worth it? And I hope for many of us, as we consider this passage this morning, our answer will be, Yes, it's worth it if we can move just one step closer to the Apostle John's vision of doxology through diversity. Yes, the cost is worth it because we love our Savior. Yes, the cost is worth it because we're moved by the immense cost he paid to make us into a kingdom and priest who will serve our God and reign together with him along with our sisters and brothers from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it sure feels different to preach on this topic now than it did even a couple years ago. And I can only hope that I faithfully presented the truth of your word in a manner that not only informs but comforts perhaps even challenges some of us here in, our, in this room. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that is not in line with your word or unbalanced or lacking the necessary nuance, I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you would captivate our hearts once again by this incredible vision of doxology through diversity. We long for the day when all the brokenness of this world will be healed, where everything we made new, and there will be people from every tribe and language and nation gathered around the throne of the Lamb who was slain for us, to purchase us for God and make us into his kingdom and priesthood. 
Lord, until that day comes, would you please help us through our words, through our actions, through even the price that we may have to pay, would you help us to represent you, your goodness, your mercy, your forgiveness, your good and compassionate rule over our hearts and over this world. Would you please help us do that for our joy and for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.